Hello. Hi. Can we hear each other? I can hear you. <laughs> Fantastic. Then everything <laughs> held together and we are live. So um, before we get into the main event here, thank you everybody for joining uh, today. Bradley live streams, Mallory, Earn, Adrian, RBMK2. I'm just going to call you RB Michael. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Peggy, uh, Fa of the family. Um, Cemetery Gates, welcome. And Scuffed Andy, you guys are just the first to arrive and uh, get your chats in. So thanks for showing up early. And, and to our replay crew when you guys get here and watch us later. And to the replay crew. Sorry, we can't announce you here, but obviously <laughs> neither of us can tell the future. So um, here we are talking about the past. Uh, and of course, uh, we'll uh, get right into it. And and of, of course, everybody hopefully had an opportunity to watch the AVM, American Paper Manufacturers, webinar yesterday with the uh, the relatively new CTP director, Brian King. Uh, Dr. King came from uh, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, where I believe he started fresh out of SUNY Buffalo, uh, after being trained as an epidemiologist, is that right? Uh, and uh, and uh, got a job, it sounds like, right out of college working for CDC. Uh, and of course, went on to work in CDC's tobacco uh, center, CDC Tobacco Free. Uh, and so bringing all of that experience and education uh, with him to FDA. Uh, and first, right off the bat, I guess, if any of us expected anything different coming from the new CTP director, um, then we were all very hopeful. Um, and I won't go as far as to say naive, because it is it is worth it to have a little bit of hope. Um, and of course, this webinar, I think, is, is it may be unprecedented uh, as far as, you know, the independent side of the industry. Um, uh, the regular industry gets visits from agency officials at all of their conferences. Um, they they do participate in things, and of course, there is a, uh, a justifiable amount of cynicism when they do show up. For example, Brian King did show up at the the GTNF in DC this or last year in September, uh, and I was there. and And his presentation lasted just long enough that he didn't have time for questions from the audience. Uh, and when those questions are unscripted, I think it puts officials in a in an uncomfortable position uh and so uh you can you can bet your ass he showed up yesterday with a lot of prep uh oh, yeah. and, and so that is uh one of the things that we wanted to focus on today were specifically some of the non-answers uh and and the questions that that dr king gave those non-answers too um i just so we'll want to really real quick um let people know that the link to the uh Q&A replay from AVM is in the description as well as other links. And um, just, just before you dump into this, I also kind of want to make the caveat that there was so much you guys to cover that there's no way we're going to get to all the stuff that he talked about during that. And we would love to, but just in an hour, there's just not. So we're just going to kind of cover the highlights of the things that stood out to us the most. Just to make a little caveat there of why we're not covering the entire thing. But I do encourage people to look at that, watch it. And I am doing a full transcript of it that I will share a link to later that you can actually read the question and then what he actually said after the question. Because when listening, when listening to it, I kept replaying it going, 
what did he just say? So we'll, we're going to be providing that for you too as well. So sorry, Alex, there's, there's my, uh, my disclaimer. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for filling this out. As, uh, as, as Kristen mentioned, you know, this all happened yesterday. A lot, a lot happened yesterday, actually, between the AVM webinar and uh, FDA releasing sort of a more uh, detailed response to the Reagan Udall Foundation's uh, report. Um, and so we'll touch on that, just a couple of points there as well. Um, but I, I figured uh, we're not going to do kind of a play-by-play -play review of, of the entire webinar. I encourage everybody to go watch it for yourself. It was an excellent job. It's an hour. It's totally worth your time. Um, and, and a lot of voices were represented. So um, definitely go check it out. But I figured we'd start on kind of the basic structure of things here uh, and, and broke things down into a couple different sections, uh, actually three here. Um, so some of the focuses uh, for, for what we're talking about today are um, I think what AVM teed up here, which is uh, getting Dr. King to agree to some sort of foundational things about vaping. And so we can say that what we all agree on here is that uh, <laughs> switching to vaping from smoking is a good thing. Uh, another good thing is innovation. Uh, from innovation, we get more options, whether that's therapies or over-the-counter, uh, just recreational stuff. Um, uh, anything more options to help people quit smoking uh, or to uh, make quitting smoking available. I want to get that choice in there. Um, uh, that That is a good thing. Uh, also, and, and this is the kicker here, which sort of throws a wrench in all of the anti-campaigns, uh, misleading lobbying messages. Um, yes, people are able to quit smoking by switching to vaping. And that's a good thing. Not only are they able to quit smoking, they are quitting. And so we have millions of people in this country, verifiably, who have quit by smoking, or quit smoking by switching to vaping, uh, and and this directly contradicts a lot of the things that we've heard in city council and, and state legislative committee hearings across the country, probably as recently as, as this past week. Um, so uh, if you do have an opportunity to uh, provide comments on legislation locally or or at the state level. Um, you can certainly reference uh, FDA and Dr. King's statements uh, that that vaping is good for helping people quit smoking, uh, and 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 some of us need to do that uh, occasionally because it keeps getting brought up. Anyway, so all of that having been said, in this sort of what we agree on section, this is where I picked up on the first dodge uh, from from Dr. King, uh, and this was a question about misinformation. And uh, the question being, is it unethical to lead people to believe that vaping is just as or more harmful than smoking? And uh, Brian King's response was that there are nuances here. And I mean, this is an obvious kind of statement. Yeah, the you know, among the products, we, we can sit here and probably spend the entire hour talking about the difference between single-use products versus rebuildables and what's better and this and that and what are the pitfalls and, and, and risks and benefits. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, obviously there are, there are some safety concerns that people need to know about. Um, and then we can get into the whole, you know, is that something that's actually being solved by FDA regulation? Um, and the other thing that, that, that came apart as, as part of this uh, exchange um, I, I, Greg sort of inserted the, you know, 
let's let's get something on the record here. Uh, has FDA ever identified? I'm not quoting, uh, but has FDA ever identified a nicotine vapor product that was more harmful than smoking? Um, the answer, of course, to this is no. But the answer that Brian King gave was more along the lines of, um, "We're we're looking at PMTA applications." Uh, that's that's not an acceptable answer, uh, and that really only relies on uh, data being shared with the FDA through the application process. Uh, there is at least one other way for the FDA to to review and evaluate information, and that's the adverse events reporting tool, which was not mentioned throughout. I believe this entire webinar um, for right. a person who is being tasked with um, uh, making the agency more transparent and opening up avenues for engagement with stakeholders. That's us. Um, uh, there were no specifics given as to where people can submit that feedback or that data. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit down the line here. Um, but that is kind of the standard dodge. Uh, and these are the two things that I picked out where he didn't really answer the question. Um, and uh, the, the second one uh, comes from misinformation. Uh, and, and the question was in, in his short time there, uh, what is Brian King doing to uh, sort of correct uh, the misperceptions of risks associated with nicotine? Uh, and also I, I think correct campaign statements that are, have been misleading uh, both adults and children about the risks of these products. Um, and so uh, what do we got? Open to enhanced efforts for CTP messaging on the continuum of risk. Uh, and so this is somewhat maybe a commitment of uh, for from Brian King uh, to more, more public statements about the fact that the continuum of risk even exists, um, which is something that has that that would actually be a counter to uh, tobacco control messaging for decades. Uh, the the message coming from from CDC, even FDA, uh, and from all of the campaigns is there is no safe tobacco use. Um, that's a that's kind of a dumb thing to say. Um, there's there's really no safe anything as far as we're really we know. Uh, so. Uh, that's, that's a really useless kind of statement, but it sets the tone for people's belief that everything is as harmful as a cigarette. So, he, you know, we see it, but this is something needed for CTP to get out there and educate the public about the continuum of risk. Um, and, uh, and realigning the public's misperceptions of risk associated with nicotine use. Uh, we still have a, a, a concerning uh, percentage of people who believe that nicotine causes cancer uh, or lung diseases and stuff like that. And so uh, this has been known for years. Uh, and I, I believe uh, uh, in this exchange, uh, Brian King was sort of called to the carpet on this, that, you know, this has been going on for, for several, I was at the, the FDLI meeting uh, when uh, you know, Mitch Zeller pounded his fist on the table and said, give me a, give me a number. What's the youth use number that's going to be acceptable for people. This was also the same conference where, um, we, we heard, uh, information about how clinicians, clinicians of, I think it was more than 40% of clinicians believe that nicotine causes cancer. Um, and, and so that's, that's something that FDA needs to fix. Um, and, uh, 
I, I, I just don't, I apologize that all of this stuff happened yesterday and we've had about 24 hours to kind of digest it all and try to come up with an hour worth of content here. Um, but hey, I could, you don't get me started because I could probably do the two hours just on the first 20 minutes I've transcribed so far. Yeah, yeah. And I know, I know that you said that, you know, that was what popped out to you. But I think the thing that jumped out at me even before I started transcribing and the reason I just explain why I started transcribing to our audience is because I just couldn't. I'm like, what did he just say? Wait, did he even answer the question? And when I started transcribing it, holy cow. I mean, you really started to see how much he was avoiding questions, uh, you know, answer, really answering the question on some things, how he would, I mean, just with the very first question I missed. And and if, if you guys want to look at the link, that's, that's the very first question in the transcription where he says, where they asked, I, I believe it was Allie asked, you've said as a general product class, vaping products are far less hazardous than smoking cigarettes. Is that something you think every adult should know? So, you know, she's saying, she's asking, should every adult American know that vaping is far less hazardous than smoking? And then he says, yeah, I would agree with the statement that if an adult smoker were to transition completely from a cigarette to an e-cigarette, that would be a benefit to their health. Yes. Well, he didn't answer her question. He created his own question, his own statement, and agreed to that. So right off the bat, and I would say that the other thing is that he just dodged anything having to do with um, consumers. You know, when, when Greg asked the question about um, the fact, essentially that, and again, this is also, I think it's one of the last questions in the transcript so far, is that um, he, he asked what, you know, most, most adult vapors say that they prefer flavors and essentially you're only, and this is, I'm, I'm, paraphrasing here, obviously, and you're only approving these unpopular tobacco flavored products, you know, are you confident that you're making the right call, basically? And, you know, he said, and maybe I should just, just find it. But I mean, he said, um, okay, here's what Greg said. If a majority of American adults who vape want and desire flavored vaping products and face no criminal penalty for purchase or possession, what gives you faith in CTP's ability to override their preferences with the relatively low market share products that have passed through the PMTA process? And his answer is that is, I'll say that we can, this is the answer, I'll say that we continue to evaluate the evidence of what has been submitted to us. What does that have to do with anything? Because, you know, I mean, and the onus is on firms to give us the best available evidence to make sure that they have a successful application in terms of an authorization. And so we're committed to continuing to work with firms to make sure that they are aware of the guidance and that they commit submit robust applications. But ultimately, this is something that I think that we've got an opportunity for improvement, but the onus remains on the firms to submit the science. We are required by Congress to follow a certain pathway and protocol to review those, and we'll continue to do so in the addition to utilizing our enforcement compliance authorities. I mean, even me, that's why you guys need to read along with this, because trying well, to understand what I'm reading, but my point is, is that he just keeps talking about the firms. Greg's question was about adults who want to vape, and where do you get off thinking you know that they're going to be perfectly happy with tobacco cigalikes when they want their blueberry or their peach or their whatever, and he didn't answer that question. He, he based, And how are firms supposed, they don't want flavors, so how are firms supposed to prove to them Okay, they do a clinical trial, 
and they do it with all with adults and they say, okay, which of these do you prefer? And their clinical trial proves that adults prefer flavors and those work best for adults, which I believe there's already been one study that comes close to that. But but then they'll turn around and say, well, that, that doesn't outweigh the fact that teens might want to vape them. You know, so this yeah, this is talk to us. This this is the the yes, breathe. <laughs> take a take a beat here. Um, yeah, I, I and and again, I, we could ramble on about this yeah, issue I, for another couple episode. of hours and not get anywhere. And and one thing I do appreciate about you know the way that this was done and, and presented is that um, you know at no point were uh, Greg or Allie gonna you know get this guy in a corner and get him to say something that was not, you know, kind of vetted by the FDA lawyers. Um, And that was, again, that was the second use of the Dodge, which is basically just referring to the PMTA process and that this is all on, uh, on the the manufacturers to prove. However, uh, you know, that, that question really opens up the door to talk about enforcement and what, what is FDA's, what are FDA's capability in terms of enforcing, uh, and 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 really, what does this look like? And and what we know, what we've known since before the deeming rule was finalized, was that FDA doesn't actually have the the human power to enforce nationally. And so that that means that the agency will be uh, sort of informally, I believe, relying on states to pick up the torch and start doing the enforcement activities of the federal government. And that's what we're following. That's what we've been following for years uh, in state legislatures and even at the municipal level. Uh, municipalities will be, will, you will see licensing. Uh, and I'm sure there's hundreds of municipalities that have already done this. Um, it, this has been a lot of the push of the, the tobacco control or tobacco, anti-tobacco activists um, getting these ordinances and laws passed that puts that enforcement authority uh, in the hands of state and local officials. Um, and, uh, so that is a, that's a really good thing actually for FDA to avoid, because then we get into questions about whether or not the rule is even appropriate. It, you know, essentially, you know, our position, it, it, it seems over and over again is that, um, you know, whenever FDA talks about enforcement, they're talking about enforcing a bad law. Uh, and I know that, 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 uh, people on the tobacco control side of things, can actually make the case that you know uh, that that the Tobacco Control Act is is a good thing and it's helped reduce smoking prevalence and um, you know I think there's another thing and you can read it back in the transcript um, that you know in addition to um, uh, stuff that was already uh, enacted the Tobacco Control Act brought new tools and FDA regulation and all of this and that further reduced smoking prevalence. Um, I, I may be getting confused with some of the other studies that I was reading earlier on, but, um, you know, as far as I can tell, and it, well, it's not really, I'm not a scientist as far as I've read. And from what I understand, um, raising the cost of tobacco products out of the suite of tobacco control policies that they, they claim we need, um, it's between the, the public information campaign in 1964, which is really just the Surgeon General's report, and raising taxes on these products. Those are the two things that have really contributed to declining smoking prevalence. Um, people's awareness that smoking is dangerous and that it costs too much. Uh, and I was actually just reviewing something you know, today, looking at a, a spike in youth use in the 90s. And it sounds to me like they attributed that to things like discounts and the cost of cigarettes coming down. 
Um, so, you know, there, there are sort of the things, but in, in nowhere in that discussion, is there, you know, flavors or, you know, all of these other things that I'm getting way off track. Um, <laughs> I swear I'll bring this back to talking about what was actually said. Um, but, uh, this, this sort of, uh, you know, ultimately, yeah, it, 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 it comes down to, it's an enforcement issue. And uh, FDA, I think, is in a, a regrettable position of, of, of knowing that they, they really don't have a whole lot of control over what we decide that we're going, where we decide to buy these products and what we decide to use. Um, the, the, the black, the underground market is, is really, really accessible these days. Uh, and it is, it is getting worse. And of course there were questions, you know, like, uh, what, uh, how do you, how does the FDA justify creating this massive black market? Um, when, um, you know, we can all agree that buying these products legally from a regulated marketplace, uh, is better. And, you know, this is something I, I think too you know, we're, hopefully we will have an opportunity. Um, we as in CASA will have an opportunity to, to, to have our own conversation with Dr. King, um, perhaps later in the year. Um, I, I'm not going to commit to anything until we've gotten confirmation from the agency that that's going to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are things that, um, I think were left undiscussed, uh, in, in the, um, webinar yesterday and by, uh, summer of 2023, according to the Reagan Udall Foundation response, um, we should see something that that really does uh, uh, beg the involvement of consumers in, in giving feedback to FDA for some of their plans going forward. So um, we will come back and visit some of the things that were were not were not touched on, um, or that uh, none of us, absolutely none of us, are satisfied with some of these answers. So. And, then, um, you know, and that's not any uh, knock against AVM oh, no. at a certain time period. And yeah. Um, yeah, there were tons of questions being posted, but there was never any time to get back to that. I mean, like one of the things I tell you posted a question, I posted a question. And then as I oh, watched yeah. the clock, I'm like, there's no way they're going to get to any of these questions. Yeah, yeah, they were. There were I think the last question by the I think the last question by Nick was the one that I was kind of along the same lines about about what what is an acceptable level of youth use before they, they, they back off, you know, and, and, and to me it's zero because there's, there's, there's just no way they're going to come out and say that. And that's the thing that bugged me the most about this whole thing is every time when it came to consumers, um, they weren't, they weren't considered, they weren't considered. Let's just say that they weren't considered because if you look at like one of the questions was uh, he asked about, Greg was asking about that Journal of Nicotine Tobacco uh, December edition that had the study with like 160 or 116 um, adults who smoke um, daily. And uh, the ones who viewed, they like compared ones who viewed the, uh, the vaping epidemic ads versus ones who had it. And the ones who had watched the FDA's ads rated e-cigarettes as being more harmful, less effective for quitting and reported lower switching motivation. He said, does that, you know, Greg asked, does that study concern you? And he says it does, but you know, we've got to look at the preponderance of evidence and also the rigorous nature of science. And it's just so funny because you know, they didn't do that when they came up with these, they were sitting in a room, they talked to some 
teens and said, does this scare you? And the teens said, yeah. And they said, okay, put it out. But they don't care about what's happening. I mean, it's so clear. Well, and then, first, he, and then I, he had, wait, wait, I, just wait. He had the gall <laughs> to say, we can't cherry pick studies. I'm like, seriously, <laughs> we're the ones cherry picking studies. You know, and, and the very last thing he said was, and right now there's a preponderance of evidence demonstrating the effectiveness of these campaigns among kids. And we continue to refine our strategies to make sure we're reaching that key population, which is youth and young adults. And we're not a key population. If you're an adult, an older adult over the age of 24, who actually has a risk of having smoking related diseases, you're not a key population. They clearly don't care about us. And we're not their goal. Their, their goal is prevention from starting, which is, and they even said, asked him that, you know, he's like, well, I know that people are still going to do it. And it's like, you, they never stop to think about the fact that vaping is a prevention for youth too. They have this, still have this pipe dream. It seems like that they're going to stop it all. And, and there are, there's a barrier to that. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that we, we were talking about the other day, I think in a chat is that, you know, even nicotine replacement therapy is not available to be you know, prescribed or, or, or suggested to be given to, to kids. Um, so the, the, to some extent, and it's not just FDA's problem, it's, it's public health, it's adults, it's parents, it's teachers, it's politicians. Everybody has a, a, a pretty big hang up about the idea that um, young people using any drug, um, I would say even caffeine, uh, but that's of course a little bit more acceptable, right? It's in all of your sugary beverages, yeah. um, Coca-Cola, so, you know, go get yourself a Coke and a smile, kiddo. Uh, <laughs> enjoy that caffeine, uh, but not too much. Uh, so it, it's, it's you know, there is a barrier to even having this discussion about preventing kids from smoking if they choose vaping. Um, and, and I don't know, this is a, this is a societal change that needs to happen. Uh, and yeah, I think yeah. a lot of, and, you know, we, that change have a critical about substance. And we are really just at the, the beginning of changing that conversation from one about moral failures to considering all of the influences, the comorbidities and reasons why people first, you know, as, as young people, why we experiment with drugs, and then as adults, why we continue to use. And I don't think that any, I don't think there's any study that's really uh, any any study or anybody's opinion that sort of oversimplifies this to saying like, well, if you use it as a kid, you're going to use it as an adult. That's that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. And, and I right. think we need to have that that same kind of attitude that that changing conversation about nicotine. We just we can all I think we can all just suck it up well, and, and yeah. start talking about I drugs. I agree. I totally, I totally agree on that. Um, but I think what I, I wasn't so much saying that, okay, they're going to vape instead of smoke, but they're so focused on preventing vaping. And if we have to have come some magical number where the FDA is finally going to agree and say, okay, well, we're down to 2%. Somebody put in the chat that they thought they heard that. I don't remember, but mm -hmm. I haven't got that far in my uh, transcript yet. So I'm sure I'll come across it. But if, if they get down to that magical number, they're not thinking about the fact that all the kids they prevented from vaping might have gone to smoke instead. So I'm not, I'm not arguing. I mean, I would argue that, that, that it is a preventative in that sense, if they vape instead, they're not smoking. But what I'm saying is they're so focused on stopping the vaping that they're not stopping people from smoking 
and they very may, very well, very well, very well may be pushing kids to smoking instead of vaping by scaring them this way and focusing on keep. It's just their weight, the the weight of what's right. the highest risk of okay, kids vaping and having some nicotine and very low risk potential, possibly being addicted for life, um, versus adults not quitting and dying. And I honestly think, I, I hate to say it, but I'm getting so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, jaded that I'm starting to think that they're, they're literally just waiting for us to all die off. And they think that they can, and they're literally doing that in laws in Hawaii and California, hoping that that's what happens by saying you can't buy tobacco or nicotine products after a certain age. We'll just let all the people who smoke die off eventually. That's essentially what they're saying. Yeah. And I mean, there's, a, there's, and we were talking about this before the show, there's a cold, hard reason for this mm -hmm. and it's money. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're measuring the outcomes of something, uh, you know, what we've, uh, what I was looking at in uh, sort of the, um, uh, the measuring the effectiveness of the real cost campaign, uh, which has some, a couple of different reviews, uh, you know, studies looking at, at, at how much it cost and, uh, and what the benefit was, uh, youth focused prevention strategies have a much larger return on investment, according to the research, than, uh, you know, cessation strategies targeted at adults. So uh, CTP, which has such a small budget of $700 million in user fees, um, has to be careful about where they spend that money. And of course, if it's just not Center for Tobacco Products, funding drug education, that is taxpayer dollars. Uh, and so the government has to justify those expenses by demonstrating that um, there is more return on investment, you know, for every dollar spent. Uh, and and one of the things that I looked at, and, and I would encourage people, I, I know that we have some some research minded folks in the audience. Um, and, uh, and, you know, within our, our of course, Kristen, you're sitting right here in front of me, um, <laughs> within our organization, uh, others can, can do a much more diligent job of looking into this than I can. But, um, you know, one of the things that I started looking at today was, uh, uh, uh sort of reviews and, and research on, uh, DARE, uh, that was the drug abuse resistance education. And at one point in its lifetime, first of all, a little bit of history on this one, uh, D.A.R.E. was was created by the LAPD and, and school districts uh, in, in Los Angeles, not scientists, not people who are experts at messaging or uh, even, you know, compassionate about the target audiences. Um, and so uh, that's why we ended up with this fear and, and uh, stigma based education campaign uh, that ultimately made kids more curious about drugs than as opposed to discouraging them from using them. Uh, and the D.A.R.E. campaign was defunded by the federal government, uh, I think maybe by the end of the 1900s. <laughs> uh, no, it's somewhere sometime in the 2000s, I think it was. It, so old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like it's only been 23 years. But um, so uh, uh, but the, the D.A.R.E. program did get uh, refurbished and it came back as uh, keeping it real, I believe. Uh, and I forget all of the, what the acronym real stands for, but it, it is, you know, resist, explain, leave, um, uh, resist, explain, uh, and leave. I can't remember what the A is for. Uh, but it was a much more, you know, they realized that they had to fix the program. And so instead of doing fear and stigma, 
They chose to build the kids up, give them decision-making skills, empower them, you know, give them the tools to get themselves out of a bad situation. Here's mm -hmm. what you can do to resist using drugs. Because, yeah, it's going to be presented to you as it's the coolest thing in the world. Come on, everybody's doing it, man. Like, don't you want to be cool? Take a puff off this joint. Well, if you don't want to, now you've been given the tools. You've been given, uh, you know, the, the, the people have sort of validated you and said, you know, and built you up and given you the courage to say, I, I don't really want to do this. And you can get into why you don't want to do this. We do have that. Not every, you know, we're not born with this uh, desire to go out and get, you know, get high. Uh, we do want to feel better when we're feeling bad. But mm -hmm. this program is is a is a, at least a step toward actually giving kids the tools to resist using drugs and maybe find something better to do with their time. So um, that is how the Dare program evolved. Of course, after kind of screwing a bunch of us up in the 90s, um, 80s and 90s. Uh, and so taking what we've learned from the failure and apparent success of the new DARE program, we can we can take those lessons and apply them to things like the real cost or tips for, free, for tips from former smokers, which are, again, fear-based and stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to your point, Kristen, when they say that, you know, oh, the, consider the preponderance or as Brian King's favorite word is the bolus of evidence. Bolus, yeah. Um, uh, I agree. I don't think that they did consider the, that uh, when crafting the real cost campaign, because if you go to the real cost website, I, I tried to approach it as like, OK, I'm going to pretend I'm an educator and I want I want to bring this into my classroom. There's no resources for for a teacher that I could find on the real cost campaign. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. I don't know. But if somebody says, hey, check out the real cost campaign. Well, that's what you're going to Google. And guess where you end up? Mm -hmm. You end up on a website with a bunch of misleading information, fear and stigma based images and videos and 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 messages. But nothing in there about, I don't know, role playing or, you know, uh, building up kids confidence, uh, playing to their strengths giving them something to have some hope in, I, I, I don't know, anything other than brain worms, uh, demonic possession, and nicotine zombies. You don't find actual resources at the Real Cost campaign. And so if we are going to change how FDA is communicating these things and, and what their prevention uh, programs are all about, we, we've got to submit the data. We've got to submit the research because even though it is out there and accessible and should show up in some sort of exhaustive search for data on whether or not a fear and stigma-based campaign is going to work, apparently there's not enough of it or apparently there aren't enough loud voices telling FDA, don't do this. Um, and so uh, th this was one of the points that we brought up when, when I was able to present at the Reagan Udall Foundation um, their listening session on this was um, uh, to, you know, that that we already know that that fear and stigma campaigns don't work anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, and they asked about that, you know, because they said that that there's been leading journals that have looked at these this FDA advertising. I love the way <laughs> Allie's like vaping's portrayed as being possessed by demons, shape shifting metal dragons, something that you fish out of the toilet or products that will cause huge parasites to crawl through your skin. And she said she personally saw adult consumers that uh, every day she talks to them, she says, who see these messages and it's terrifying them. And 
she asks, can you see how the FDA itself has become the main contributor to misinforming and scaring adults in a way that keeps them smoking? And he didn't answer it. He's like, I'll say that we do rigorous evaluations before before and after implementation of any of our campaigns, which clearly they didn't because um, they haven't done it after because did they look at any of these leading journals? And that's what you're talking about. Is we need to find that stuff and send it to them and say, now you can't ignore it. It's been sent to you. But he said that they test them and they, I love this, we, and we cognitively test them and do science in the beginning, <laughs> do science. Yeah. And then we evaluate them on the back end. That science has shown demonstrably that there's a beneficial impact. Um, but it's beneficial, what he's not saying is it's beneficial only for that target group. You know, they're not looking at how it's affecting everybody. They're just looking, oh, look, it's making kids quit. And just let's ignore that it's making people who smoke quit too, you know. Um, and like you said, they, they can't, he just keeps coming back to, well, send us to science, send us to science, you know. And yeah, and no, it's, you it's, need to stop doing things that you clearly can see are damaging public health. They sh nobody should need to send you science for that. But I see what you're saying. It, it, it's, it's hard to take that answer. I mean, it is a dodge, um, but it, it, it's hard to take even the, science, the attempted, the, I'm sorry, what? Do science. Do science. That made me laugh when he said that. We, then we do science. That's, that's you know, that's what we got. Do the math, do the science, do science, um, do crime. We do science. It's not really so, science. you know, it's it's kind of hard to take that, uh, you know, response crafted, I'm sure, by the lawyers. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's hard to take it. See, I want that to be genuine. I really do. Yeah. But when... And, and I, I'm going to have a hard time, you know, lobbing some criticism here because I have not done an exhaustive review of all the literature that's available reviewing the effectiveness of the real cost campaign. But there are two that were pretty easy to find. Um, and one was from 2017. Uh, the uh, the study is uh, association between the real cost media campaign and smoking initiation among youths, uh, United States, 2014 to 2016. Uh, this was co-authored, by the way, by the new Office of Science Director, Matthew Farley. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, one of the criticisms about him is that basically his experience involves um, giving the FDA a, a big old thumbs up on everything they've done. Um, and part of that is, is is part of this report. There were other authors involved, so it's not just him. But um, uh, they found, according to this study, that uh, the real cost, let's see, uh, I'm sorry, approximately 350,000 youths aged 11 to 18 were prevented from smoking nationwide during 2014 and 2016. If you go a little bit further along in 2018, someone else did a, a study on this, I think similar con con, uh, conclusions, um, but uh, they claimed that the real cost averted an estimated 175,000 people, uh, young, young people from right. becoming established smokers. So I think maybe they're just working off of different definitions or different groups. It, it's hard to tell, but one person's got one number, another person's got another. And um, again, it, eventually this comes down to uh, return on investment here. Apparently uh, between 2014 and 2016, the real cost expenditures uh, totaled $246,915,233. That's like a third of CTP's budget. Um, okay, they've got Bloomberg. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm kidding. I, I, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
So it, yeah, let's not encourage Michael Bloomberg to give any more money <laughs> right. to this. I, I just go set it on fire. Um, I don't know. Buy people tiny houses. That would be a great way to help people not smoke. <laughs> give them some housing security and food security. Uh, take care of some basic stuff like that. Uh, I guarantee you, you're going to reduce smoking prevalence. Um, so anyway, um, I don't exactly. Oh, I. I it, so yeah, it, it's it's hard for us to take all this seriously when you have like these. It, it feels like these glowing, uncritical reviews of 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 these programs. I don't care if you if you have a dozen studies, if they're all garbage or if they're all biased, then that's not the preponderance of evidence. And one of the things that I think anybody in here has probably noticed over the years that probably starting in 2008, 2009, the funding available for researching these products seemed geared toward finding everything that was wrong about them. Mm. And so, of course, there's an overweight, if you're, if you're doing this on sort of like, and I know that this, this isn't a vote, like you don't, you know, FDA or, you know, National Academies or Royal College of Physicians or whoever it is, if they're going to do their review, they don't just look at the number of studies and say, okay, you've got 50 in favor and 150 against, well, I guess they're bad. That's not what they're supposed to do. I don't think that they actually do that. But if you're available, that you're breaking of, up of the, of the available literature has been not great. Am I, am I breaking up? You just broke up. I missed what you just said. Something with the literature not being available literature being available is not great. Which literature? <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, sorry. No, well, that, that was... the beginning. I'm just talking about the, like the last 15 seconds of what you said. Cool. I'm shooting from the cuff here. So it's hard for me to remember. What <laughs> <laughs> oh God. But I, you know, it, it really was all about, you know, like if you opened up the, the, I'm, I'm imagining just a big book of every like physical book, not the internet. But if you go on the internet, okay, let's just, let's keep with something everybody can identify with. If you go on the internet and you try to search, you know, studies for and studies against, um, uh, studies that show the benefits of vaping versus the number of studies that show the potential risks. And we know that a bunch of that is overblown and not accurately done and all of those things. Still, first of all, those bullshit studies are the ones that get cited in things like uh, 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 you know, policy recommendations, uh, lobbying people use that to enact stricter regulations. They, they have no scruples about, you know, how good the, the quality of the research that they're presenting, just that they know that there's a whole lot of it. Right. On the flip side, the, the studies showing the benefits, they haven't been getting a lot of government funding. I think that's changing. Uh, but up until now, we haven't seen a lot of government funding for, you know, let's talk about the benefits. Let's see if act people are actually quitting smoking. Right. Um, and, and so there is that imbalance in the number of studies with no regard to quality. Uh, and so I think when when people like Brian King talk about the preponderance of evidence, they're talking about what's available in the journals and what's available in the journals is there because that's where the funding has been going. And that's what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, just in real quick, because exactly that's what what these what the government's asking for is give us studies that show us how bad this stuff is. And then they turn around and, and, and they're not saying, OK, well, give us studies that show that adults uh, uh, need flavors. It's better for adults to have flavors. Give us studies that 
show, you know, that ask adults who recently quit smoking or have been quit smoking, what's the pro the, the product they use that they found the most effective? I mean, that'd be a simple question to help solve, you know, to help towards the whole, does it help people quit smoking? You know, they don't ask those questions. And you know why they don't ask those questions because it's almost impossible to answer those questions. So that's why they throw back at the industry and say, well, you answer those questions. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of nuts. So we're coming up on the last like 12 minutes here and I swear we're going to get this wrapped up. Um, and, and I, I think we've, we've managed to vamp a lot here. Well, <laughs> so you, know, I, you know, one of the other things, for helping. speaking <laughs> of research, because because Greg, that was one of the questions Greg asked. He said he talked about the formative research on on how the, the their messaging is affecting adults. Their their negative vaping, anti vaping is affecting adults. And uh, how do you put that? Uh, for at least five six years, the former director of CTP and other CT employees have spoken at conferences repeatedly saying that correcting those misperceptions around nicotine is something they want to do. And he asked him, "So, are you saying that before you entered the job, zero progress has been for five or six years has been made on figuring out how to message the truth to adult smokers in the medical community or, you know, or in general?" I, I loved how he managed not to put snark on that question. I would have been so snarky with that question, <laughs> Greg. Um, and he says, no, I wouldn't say zero. This was his answer. But I will say that we have a lot of competing priorities in this center. I mean, this has been evidenced by my first seven months. Then he laughs. A lot has happened. And when you have a finite number of resources and people, you have to prioritize what you have, what you do to have the greatest impact. So I will say for my part, I mean, coming into this position, there's four key tenants I'm adhering to that strong science, stakeholder relations, who's the stakeholders, uh, coming um, communications and health equity. And so obviously the stakeholder relations and communications are pivotal to this. The thing is, is that prioritize. So scaring, they, they prioritize what they're saying. What he basically just said is they prioritize scaring a few youth away from vaping because that was a more of a concern than getting adults who have been smoking for decades to quit yeah. smoking. Yeah. Yeah. That's the answer. That, and that's the answer we're always going to get. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can, you can set your watch to that. And the reason is because it's cheaper to scare kids away from things than it is to try to get adults to quit it. And they it's have also ideology, Alex. I mean, it's not all about the money. It's ideology too. Well, in, in terms of their answer, can it, somehow it, stop them the, from, yeah. You know, so they don't care about us dying. <laughs> politicians and regulators are never going to cop to sacrificing adults who are just sort of a lost cause. They think uh, they're, they're never going to publicly admit to that. It's not a lost cause. That's the thing. <laughs> say that again. They That's what they say. But vaping is proving we're not a lost cause. I thought I was a lost cause. You probably thought you were. I was never going to quit smoking. Yeah. And that's the thing that gets me is that here's something that's finally taking away that lost cause. It's creating something that's showing it's not a lost cause. And they don't care about it. They, they're willing. And, and I'm sorry, the whole money thing of being cheaper one of the biggest things I have against people smoking is how much we supposedly cost the government and society from our smoking in lost hours, in damaged homes, in insurance, in medical bills. So yeah. come on. Sorry. No, I, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, I know Carl was very fond of pointing out that, you know, when you factor in people who smoke dying early, um, it actually turns out to be kind of a wash. So we're mm -hmm. really not that big of an expense. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. on an individual family level, having to pay for all that care and deal with that, sure. But in terms of, you know, at the population level, 
we're not really adding a whole, like, even if you factor in like lost hours at work, lost productivity, you know, it's, we die early. So we're not going to take up a bunch right. of social security payments or, you know, other stuff that we're entitlements. Nursing home costs. Right. You know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and I'm not going to end up, I, that's my plan is to not end up in some place where I'm, you know, not mo. I don't know. I will we'll figure it out when I turn 65. Um, to me, that's so, the gist of what came out of this whole thing is just that adults don't matter. Adults who vape, <laughs> you don't matter. I'm sorry. That's what it came down to. Well, I mean, everything I, he said, I'm, you guys, once I have the transcript done I'm, and I put the link, you tell me, you, you text me, whatever. And you tell me if you don't, if, yeah. once you read what he says, read into it, if you don't agree. <laughs> so I'm going to take the last eight minutes here. And um, you have one question. Should we do that oh, first or after? Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll 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 do that, right? This one. Yep. Is Congress the only way we can fight FDA tobacco? Uh, I am. I'm actually going to align myself with Mark's comment in response here, uh, which is that's kind of a difficult and dangerous way to go about it. Um, yeah, and, make it worse. And 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 I, I I I'll just throw my two cents in here. I don't have much faith in the courts either. Um, but that does seem to be where we're, you know, holding the most ground and, and, and people in the industry anyway, is able to, to fight back. Right. Um, I think for, uh, and this, this actually, the, the, this ties into kind of where I wanted to wrap things up here. Um, it, you know, as far as consumers role in influencing the FDA, and that's, that's where we are, we're, we're, we're hoping to influence thoughts and, and ultimately changes at the FDA. Um, and yeah, we're here. We want to access these products and, and, and we want to support any changes that, that are going to, you know, preserve our access actually, well, at this point, increase our access to these products. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I have a little bit of a, a counter to what your assessment, Kristen, of, 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 of. <laughs> The, you always the, do, the, Alex. <laughs> I do. It helps the conversation. That's, <laughs> this, is, this is how science works. So, We're doing um, science. This is exactly how science works. So um, uh, the other side of this is it, it's not so much a counter uh, to your opinion of, of, of what we got out of this webinar, but more of a um, let's hold FDA to their word. And, you know, Brian King came into this stating at several times, you know, his task really is to uh, 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 bring more transparency to the the center, the Center for Tobacco Products, and uh, and uh, 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 increase engagement with stakeholders. And so, hopefully, we are going to have another opportunity here. Um, and I just, I'm just realizing, like, we completely glossed over the very important question about a comprehensive plan and how far, if if at all, FDA has deviated from that 2017 comprehensive nicotine plan. Um, and 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 Brian's uh, Brian King's response to that was also as unsatisfying as many of the other responses, which was like, oh no, we're still sticking to that. We're going to ban menthol, and we're going to do this and nicotine limits. All of the things that we had a problem with right. in that additional comprehensive plan—that's what FDA has been focusing on. He you know? forgot who he was talking to. <laughs> yeah, we're not so, the same moms. You realize that, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, it's it, it, that's uh, that's a, a completely different thing, but. The point of, of my counter whatever here is that we will have those opportunities to provide comments. It might sound and might feel a little bit like what we've been doing all along, um, but we need to hold his feet 
to the we need to hold him to his word. That's what it is. We need right. to hold Brian King to his word and and make sure that these areas of of uh, communicating with FDA are open and that we can clearly identify what that pathway is to share these communications. And so, um, as to to kind of round things out here, um, I did want to share a little bit about. Um, you know, this is part of FDA's response to the Reagan Udall Foundation. Uh, we'll, we'll have that link in the description. Um, and and I, we're not going to go into to serious detail here because we've got less than four minutes left. Um, but one of the things everybody needs to pay, pay attention to here is what's going to be happening this summer and right. what 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 Dr. King is is sort of committing to or or at least saying that they're going to be doing. Uh, is coming up with some sort of strategic plan, a, a, a five-year plan, which AVM has already called out as um, sort of a, a way of saying we're not going to do anything about it. Um, in, for over five years, you have an administration change. You have uh, 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 um, uh, I'm, I'm personnel changes. You have potential personnel changes at FDA. People, Brian King's job is always, always up for review. Uh, so, if we do think that this is a good thing and this is good progress, that's great. But the next person could come along and do something completely different. So a five-year plan, uh, we'll believe it when we see it. How about that? And what we should see is as early as this summer, opportunities for public comment on what FDA should be doing. And so we're going to be following this. And this is something I hope that that we can work with, with CTP and FDA and have Brian King come and talk to us and more details about what this plan is, where individual consumers can get involved, what types of feedback, uh, whether it's just lived experience. Well, it should be a combination of our lived experiences and data that we can get to support or explain what we've experienced. Um, all of these things. Hopefully, we can have that conversation and 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 get uh, you know robust participation in this process that ultimately, hopefully benefits FDA in making the right decisions going forward. Um, I, I, it sounds like I'm all Pollyanna and like, you know, rainbows and <laughs> it's not going to be stuff. easy, but this is about, this is part of the process of holding people to their word. Okay. You said all of this glowy, wonderful stuff. We're going to hold you to that. We want to participate. And so for now, um, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that he said over and over again was give us the data, give us the research. We want mm -hmm. to hear these things. There's no like button to click on the FDA website. If you've got a new piece of research that you want the agency to pay attention to, or perhaps you've written some sort of, you know, term paper style report on all the things that you as an individual have been researching and here's what you think and, and here's your evidence and all this stuff that FDA may not have seen and you don't know, we don't know. Uh, there's there's nothing on the website telling you. Here's send that. Uh, if you have a bad reaction to a product, you can find the tool. It's the adverse events reporting tool. Whether it's medicines or tobacco, you can find that very easily on the website. So, as far as I know, right now the only place to send people, if you do have these comments or you have data that the FDA needs to take a look at, or you want to write your own report and say, hey, review this FDA and make some changes. The CTP ombudsman is probably the only place for you to go. And I'm saying probably because I don't actually know. And again, mm. there's no real button for you or I to click and, and send our comments. 
Um, CTP we're stakeholders. Not <laughs> we're not stakeholders. I was just about to say that CTP <laughs> stakeholder relations. It's not really the place for us. Um, and that's one of the things so. we have to change. Sorry to interrupt, but that's one of the things we need to change. We need to make FDA see consumers, adults, old farts like us <laughs> as stakeholders. And that's why we need consumers to really get involved. And do you think we're going to have any like maybe calls to action later on for that? I mean, I don't, two questions for you, two questions. Mm, okay. Do you think we're going to have a call to action that we, that there's something that maybe if we dig into this, we might be able to find a way to kind of get our voice heard um, because now this might open up something for us. And number two, does that five years, is that giving us more time? Does it give us more time? Just in general, like is this, is vaping kind of have a possible little, because they, they're so overwhelmed. He kept saying that too, which I'm like, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you can't get to all this enforcement. <laughs> but, you know, some people may ask that. I would think that some people might ask, you know, oh, he said five years. So does that give vaping another five years? What is, you know, what does that mean? Oh, so, so yeah. So I'll take the last question first and I'll say um, it doesn't matter what their timeline is. Vaping is here to stay. Uh, <laughs> the, the toothpaste is out of the tube and there's really no squeezing it back in. Uh, and that's why we're having this conversation about enforcement and why enforcement is going to be so difficult. Um, and I, I think uh, I, I had a, an opportunity to talk with someone last week. Um, and one of the points I brought up was that, you know, you have to think about the people who are being tasked with enforcing these these rules and regulations. And at one point, the state of New York was proposing for New York State Police to enforce the flavor ban. Um, and to to me and just about everybody else who follows this issue closely enough, that's kind of a joke because we know <laughs> that law enforcement over index on smoking. Uh, they they smoke at disproportionately higher rates. Law enforcement, retired military, uh, all anybody who has an incredibly stressful job. Uh, and so now you're asking those state troopers who probably shop at the stores that you're asking them <laughs> right. to go shut down uh, to enforce a law that they probably don't believe in. Uh, so that's just one wrinkle to it. Uh, and, and I don't think that, that this five-year plan or anything gives uh, vapors or the vapor industry any more time. Um, we, we've got what, what we've got. If you vape, you know how to get a hold of the products. Um, the real issue, of course, is people who continue to smoke all the misperceptions of risk. These are more complicated things that FDA absolutely needs to do. Uh, and, and hopefully they figure it out in five years. I think they could probably figure it out in about six months. But um, uh, again, uh, you know, I think AVM's uh, cynicism here is, is probably appropriate. Um, so they don't need five years to figure this out. This is kind right. of our, 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 our position on this. Um, the other thing was uh, with, whether or not we'll see a call to action related to this. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I think one of the things that, um, you know, we're not going to kind of relive what we did in 2014 with comments on the deeming rule. Uh, there was a lot of kind of run up to that in preparing people uh, to start thinking about their comments. And so that, you know, people were submitting unique, you know, their own perspectives on this, whatever research you've managed to, 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 to dig up on this and put it into some sort of comment. I don't think we need to go through that exercise again. Uh, but but this is this is more about us making sure that people know that there is a, a portal open to get comments to FDA. Uh, and, you know, most of the time that's through regulations.gov. Uh, but if FDA does put something on their website, we want to promote that to our members and we want people to have we're not going to do, a, you know, a point and click kind of uh, boilerplate message campaign to FDA. Brian King even brought that up. You know, yeah. those form letters 
Those are things that all end up in a folder somewhere, and and you know they just count them. They don't really read them. They don't. And and because they're form letters, you read one, you've re you've read them all. And so something that we did with the the menthol comment, the cigar flavor band comment, we just left those fields blank. We want to hear. We want to see your words. We want to see your lived experience and we want you to share that with fda so uh, uh I mean, we leave them blank but just so people understand we put like tips and and things oh, like yeah. that on the side so we don't leave you hanging completely we say here do something we still yeah. try to help you by guide we just don't pre plug it into the form because that they just they they glaze over on those yeah um that's what we do that's what casa does alex um, to be I'm sorry. I'm starting to read the comments here. No, I was just so, saying that's what we do. I said you you really do all those calls to actions and stuff. But um, yeah. this, I, I just one more thing about <clears throat> where was this? Where did that go? Oh shoot! I didn't. I forgot to start. Somebody said something that uh, about the fact that um, doing the companies have to prove everything for every single oh. thing. And I was going to say that's a good point. You know, for, for companies the it's just so ridiculous. So if you know if you've got your peach flavor, you have to prove that adults do better with peach flavor. That's why this is just it's an impossible thing because you're proving a negative thing in so many cases. And that's why they yeah. need to not be talking to industry to determine these things. They need to be talking to consumers. Industry can't prove this stuff based on just their single products for each single product they can't say yeah peaches and apple and bubblegum and you know that those are all because there's just no way to prove that because i never use bubblegum so they can't prove it's going to help me quit smoking you know it's just an impossible thing to prove that's why the studies have to be of us they have to look to us and say what do they do better with as a whole group and there's no way these companies are going to be even even bt is going to have a hard time get getting all of us to show up you know what i mean so but yeah and 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 i i think you're i mean you're you're this is this is something that we've all been talking about that. for for so many years and 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 it is this difference between uh oh thanks sorry i left that <laughs> um it, and it is this difference between you know an authorization pathway versus a notification system which is what they have in the uk uh uk isn't perfect but it's a little bit better than what we've got in the united states uh and so and, and a lot of that i think is uh there there is a little bit there's a, there's a detectable level of ideology involved here um but um there's also a lot of fear a lot of concern uh fda has been criticized for reacting to this issue rather than being proactive um, which is also not a fair characterization because FDA did try to take these products off the market back yeah. in 2009, uh, which is you know part of why we're in this mess, uh, and 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 so on. They have tried repeatedly to 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 nip this in the bud before it ever gets out in the public, um, but it's just not that it's 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 like trying to hold back a tidal wave you know with your bare hands. Uh, it, it's just this is the way of the world. This is evolution. This is this is product innovation, uh, and so on. So. Uh, but I think, it, you know, if I could suggest something, in, you know, in terms of the content of people's comments to FDA, it will be, I think, you know, encouraging FDA to uh, think about this more broadly. Uh, think about the product category, not each individual product. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there, there is the, the possibility for 
the agency to do post-marketing marketing surveillance in a way that does protect young people and does protect consumers. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I think it's more important to make sure that the agency knows who is making all of these products so that they can get in contact with them if something does pop up. If something comes through the adverse events reporting tool, then FDA can be in touch with the manufacturer and say, hey, you need to do a recall and you need to take care of your customers and and, and, and fix whatever's wrong, I, whatever it is. I, I know I'm oversimplifying it. I know this is not necessarily how the world works, but n- moving the agency in that direction, I think, is something that us, you know, through repeated contact and, and clear, honest and, and collegial, which I say collegial, collegial <laughs> conversation with the FDA, I think we can move them in this direction and it, it will take it will take time. Uh, and uh, and I, I'll go back to, you know, this is this is society and cultural change. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not simply a matter of, you know, flipping a policy switch somewhere. Uh, and, and, and so this is, you know, anybody who argues that the Tobacco Control Act is a monumental piece of legislation and it's, it's a benefit for public health. Fine. I'm not entirely going to disagree with you. But the way that the FDA has rolled out the regulations, the agent, the regulators interpretation of the statute is up for debate and discussion. Mm-hmm. FDA does have enforcement discretion and the agency is allowed, has defended its ability to use that enforcement discretion uh, to, to, to help us all have a regulated and, and relatively safe, high quality marketplace where people can be assured that the products they're buying aren't going to kill them immediately. So, yeah. and, that's, and that's gonna come back on them too. I mean, cause yeah. I think that might, it might have to do that mm-hmm. is that, they may need to see that adult illicit market really start to thrive. I mean, it killed me when he said, well, we've seen it proven in menthol bans in Canada. And, um, you know, because they asked about prohibition and, and it, when you ban stuff, the illicit market that's going to come out. And he said, well, we, Canada and the Netherlands, you know, they're fine. Well, first of all, the Netherlands just did it. So there's no data there to really look at it, you know, too recent. And in Canada, most of the people move to regular cigarettes. So, I mean, the, the whole, this whole idea, and it's a whole different thing than vaping. Menthol cigarettes are different than vaping. He does not understand because he won't talk to us, the true stakeholders, how passionate we are about our flavors. (laughs) So we we could probably do another episode on, on, uh, on those, those uh, statements about menthol and and the studies showing the, the the outcomes there and, and how that's being weighted. But and I just keep talking. So uh, we are going to end it here. I'm going to go into the closing spiel. And uh, uh, first of all, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, I, I assume we'll be back in two weeks, but um, it's still winter up here. And I'm still <laughs> tired all the time. So, Which is why Logan's uh, not here and I am today. Sorry. About I may that, keep guys. my low energy ass off the screen uh, in two weeks and we'll see. So... Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you're new to CASA, this is the first time visiting us, check out our website at casa.org, C-A-S-A-A dot org. Uh, And while you're there, be sure to check out our store, Advocate in Style. Danielle Jones, our board president, has made a bunch of really cool designs that you can have on T-shirts and other uh, consumer products that you might want to show off your support for vaping and tobacco harm reduction. And, of course, CASA. And uh, you can follow us on the social medias. We are at Casa Media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, right? It's at Casa Media or just Casa Media. For which? 
there's like two different Kasa accounts on YouTube. Oh, and it always yeah. Works. I think Kasa yep. Media is the one that's cool. Just follow some links that we put in the descriptions and whatnot on the social medias, and you will eventually find our, our YouTube channel. Um, I think I did all of the things. Oh, oh, you can find this podcast where you find podcasts, Spotify. Uh, uh, we have a, a SoundCloud. Uh, and then I guess it goes out to other podcast places. But those are the two. Definitely, you can find us on Spotify and SoundCloud. Right. Uh, and uh, if you do want a written transcript of this episode, uh, just click the the little gear on the on on the YouTube thing, and you can actually get a transcript of what we've been saying here. It might be a little weird because of I think it's an AI doing all the work. Yeah, I don't but know if it'll be able to interpret my Midwestern accent, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so. And like I said, I will be posting uh, probably by Monday the full transcript of the Q&A with um, Brian King. You guys, you got to read that because you're just not going to believe what you didn't hear when you read it. Um, and I think the only thing is uh, I think that was it. Everything's going to be reposted on Facebook. Did you talk about Facebook and the state groups and everything? Oh, I didn't say the state groups. Yeah, we have state groups. We're uh, all 50 states. Puerto Rico, DC, uh, one of the others, I think Guam. Um, they haven't been very active. We'd love to see some more people in there. We try to post anything that's relevant. Alex's call to actions. We did not do a call to action or, um, legislative no, and, today, and, but and, uh, check the last newsletter on our website, kasa.org. Just click the blog button. And the last, all of them are at the top of the newsletter. I left them in there. Um, and I think that's it. <laughs> that's it. Definitely, uh, definitely join CASA. Uh, and if you are curious about what's going on in your state or hometown, uh, check out all of our state pages on uh, the website. We have a nice clicky map with uh, all of the alerts. It's just click on the how to get involved section and, and state and local alerts and you can find out what's going on. It's not a comprehensive, exhaustive list of every single bill that's been introduced. There are hundreds of them. Uh, right now, we have about a half a dozen things that are sort of flaring up. This is legislative, the, begin of, the beginning of legislative sessions. So uh, February, March uh, into April, uh, we will see committee hearings coming up. So we're just getting started. It's been kind of a busy year so far, um, and we will see more. But make sure you're joined up as a CASA member, and you'll get those alerts when you need them. Follow us on all the things. Yeah. We'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Okay. All right. Bye. See ya.